justify prove to be right or reasonable justification is at the heart of all legal and political argument but at a time when argument itself is slave to appearances it is time to bring back a culture of justification justify a podcast on law and politics in india from the vidhi center for legal policy hosted by orgo sen gupta welcome to episode 6 of the second season of justify it's a real pleasure to have you with us we're going to talk about india's farm laws in this episode titled farmers versus farm laws the three farm laws passed by the parliament in late 2020 are a curious choice as a lightning rod issue that divides the nation after all jai jawan jai kisan has meant that the farmer is the holy cow scarcely touched let alone adversely affected by any political party yet the nda government went ahead and passed three laws that has a large number of farmers particularly in the northern states very upset what do these laws do one of the new laws the promotion and facilitation act ends the monopoly of the government's agriculture produce market committee that runs the local mandi it gives farmers and traders the freedom to trade in any area including on an electronic platform in tandem the second law The Price Assurance Act empowers farmers to enter into contracts directly with buyers bypassing middlemen who are an endemic feature of Indian agriculture. This is commonly known as contract farming. The third law is an amendment to the Essential Commodities Act or the ECA which limits government intervention in the agriculture market only in extreme cases of war, price rise, famine, etc. this as the government has been at pains to point out has nothing to do with the minimum support price or the msp for paddy and wheat which is not provided under the essential commodities act nonetheless it's a clear sign of the determination of the government to be a facilitator rather than an active price setter of indian agriculture today we discuss three salient issues on these farm laws that have riven the nation what exactly are the farm protests about is it about the farm laws themselves or about the intent of the government to step away and is this intent of the government a step in the right direction or do the farmers at delhi's gates see something that the rest of the country does not to discuss these questions we have with us a long time tracker of indian agriculture irina vittal Irina has been associated with Nestle and McKinsey and is an independent board member of the Vidhi Center for Legal Policy besides several other boards and as i said has tracked indian agriculture for a long long time thanks very much irina for joining us it's a real pleasure to have you pleasure to be here so so irina the protests at the borders of delhi have now gone on for close to 2 months So can you help us demystify the protests a little bit where is their intensity coming from it's an intriguing protest orgo because there seems to be very little link between what the law says which is about disintermediation and the farmers ability to sell directly to anybody and what the farmers are protesting about which is minimum support price for two important crops called um wheat and and paddy and i think the protest comes primarily because perhaps the farmers are unable to see the link between what all of us want which is sustainable agriculture higher income to the farmer and what the law seems to be talking about which is a market reform and in the absence of seeing a link perhaps they have brought in 
um, their concerns about where they wonder whether this is a tra Trojan horse and they've made it about MSP, which the law actually doesn't even talk about. But perhaps that's actually an interesting one because if I were to play devil's advocate as, uh, as some people have done and, and Kaushik Basu most notably uh, has said that the farm has lauded the farmers for their vision, that perhaps playing devil's advocate, one could say that the farmers are seeing this as the first sign of government deregulation. So while it has nothing to do with the MSP, they think perhaps that the MSP and other government price support mechanisms could be next on the chopping block. Yeah, I, no, I can see that. But let's just look at both the elements, right? The law, basically, the new law says, as a farmer, you don't have to go to the 7,200 mandis. You can get sell directly to a, anybody and you don't have to pay the mandi tax. By the way, this was done in Bihar, as a lot of people have talked about, almost 16 years ago. This has been done in other states, in a lot of places. And more importantly, it applies only to 30-35% of the Indian agricultural system, because it only applies to grain. Dairy and livestock, which is 35% of Indian agriculture, has never been covered by this. Most of, most of horticulture, which is again another 30%, has never been covered by this. Sugar, oil seed, I could go on and on, right? So this law primarily talks about grains, which still to a large extent flow through the Mandi system, and more importantly, uh, for, on the MSP system in Punjab and Haryana. So the law talks about releasing the constraints around the farmer. How does the farmer interpret this as, as a risk to MSP? I think perhaps the farmer interprets this as a risk to MSP because if you really think about what the farmer needs, the farmer doesn't need a market reform. The farmer needs in Punjab and Haryana support to be able to transition away from wheat and rice, which he has grown for too long for the nation, and some kind of de-risking for a couple of years as they make the transition away. And then once they decide to transition out and for farmers across the country, they need a simultaneous availability of the right inputs, the right credit, the right infrastructure support, and right organization mechanisms which allow small farmers to be able to negotiate with large buyers. And unless all four come together, the farmer doesn't work. Now, do these four things ever sync up with what the law does? It doesn't, right? So we'll come to the reforms that Indian agriculture needs in a moment. And as you rightly alluded to the fact that it needs a lot more than simply this kind of deregulation. But uh, I'm not an expert in this issue, but reading the Shanta Kumar committee report, I saw that only 6% of Indian farmers benefit from the MSP. Second, that MSP is available only on paddy and wheat. And third, that the protests seem to be concentrated primarily in and around Delhi, whereas farmers across the country, well, some of them may be in support of it, some of them are ambivalent about it, but it's not entirely clear as to where they stand. So are these protests a case of a voluble minority that is, that is really championing this cause? Or are they really spokespersons for the larger Indian farming community? I think a bit of both. Uh, these farmers are the ones who are impacted the most. But it is interesting to see why that is so. If you go back and look at the genesis of MSP, it came because we wanted uh, to have food security in India. And MSP works when three things happen. One, there is an MSP. Second, there is a procurement system 
because it's a minimum support price at the end of the day, right? And third, the procurement system works at the time when the crop comes out of the field. This kind of a construct, while the MSP was informed for the whole country, the procurement system and the ability to source this was primarily created in Punjab and Haryana all those years back because these two, because of the Bhakrarangal Dam and because of the availability of water and electricity ended up being the area, the food walls of the country. And so the government was very comfortable sourcing wheat and paddy primarily from these two states. It slowly got extended to UP, to parts of Madhya Pradesh, to parts of Chhattisgarh, Jharkhand to some extent, but it never went beyond that. And a lot of it was because the government did not create the procurement system. Therefore, we've ended up all these years later with Punjab and Haryana playing a disproportionate role in providing food security for the country. UP, by the way, produces more wheat, but it cannot give it to the nation because it has 220 million people. Where Punjab and Haryana produced a lot, had smaller populations, and so we're able to spare this for India. So it is true that the MSP regime has supported the Punjab and Haryana farmer more than more, most other states. But we've also got to recognize that we were not doing them a favor. <laughs> they did this because the nation wanted it. And in the process, they got fair returns. If this, if this regime were to be withdrawn or were to be modified, obviously they will be the largest set of farmers impacted in the country. But the principle that they are fighting for is equally valid for farmers elsewhere, which is agriculture is a risky sector. It's risky not just in India, it's risky across the world. I mean, American farmers have suicide rates which are three times that of the American population, despite the subsidies they get. So agriculture is risky. You know, the weather falls, pests come and hit you. Climate change now is going to put 15 to 30% of Indian agriculture at risk because of extreme temperature, extreme gaps in monsoon. It's risky. Second, if we want, as a nation, we want a certain set of our people to provide for the rest of the country, we need to de-risk them. If we have spent 40 years asking some farmers to produce for the whole country and de-risk us, because if India ever goes to the food market, we'll never be able to source food if there's ever a famine, right? Our quantums are too large and we won't have ships and docking systems. So if we want the farmer to de-risk the country, we better have a mechanism to be able to de-risk him to a certain extent. And if they feel threatened that the de-risking mechanism is going to be withdrawn, I think they will, they have a right to revolt because they don't understand what is really happening. And in the absence of clarity, in the absence of trust, perhaps they are, they are out in the streets saying, hey, we don't know what's happening. So we want to prevent something that's bad from happening. That's right. And I think that that actually is a is an interesting point that you make as to what are the methods by which this de-risking can be successfully done? Because obviously the MSP strikes me as one method of government price uh, support as a very direct method of de-risking. Uh, and contract farming, which is allowing the farmers the freedom to trade, while of course it could be seen as the as, as something completely new and uncharted territory could be seen as another form of de-risking through freedom. So I was just reading a story of Meherban Singh, who was a progressive farmer from Saholi village in Patiala, 
who's been doing contract farming and growing vegetables in open fields as well as in a poly house now he had he was of course a wheat and paddy farmer to begin with but uh, entered first into a contract with the punjab agro food grain corporation and switched to working with pepsico and he says he's been working fine with pepsico for the last 10 years and he admits to some logistical challenges but has been engaged in contract farming for the last 10 years and supplies directly from the farm gates to through pepsico's middlemen to pepsico now the question that arises is that given this example of meherban singh and several others who have successfully made the switch to contract farming some have done so successfully and some have not the question is that if the government wants to give an option to farmers like meherban singh to engage in contract farming and support it administratively can there be an argument against this greater choice being given no because the government doesn't need the farmer doesn't need this law to be able to do that i mean your example pepsi has been doing this in punjab for years other people have been doing it in andhra pradesh tobacco for years or potato in gujarat for years or tomatoes in various parts of the country so this law was not required or to put yourself in the shoes of the punjab farmer right you're looking at it and saying for 20 years we've been told get out of paddy and wheat nothing has happened uh suddenly in 2020 we have bills which have been passed in a rush when in feb the same government said the 15th finance commission wants us to incentivize states to diversify and make agriculture more sustainable and we are going to do that so in feb this government was talking about incentivizing states and then in august september it suddenly rushes through three laws i'm an intelligent farmer i'm looking at the laws and saying does this help me actually either transition out of my crop or improve my agriculture returns and i can't see how the law does that because it doesn't tell me anything new in any case if i'm a punjab farmer all my milk goes straight to nestle or to the cooperative fruits and vegetables in any case like this progressive farmer goes to anybody that i want so i'm scratching my head and saying what's this law about and then i look at it and say oh i've also seen reports from the government which says we should start giving food vouchers fci should stop its operation this is the first year ever in the history of india where more wheat was procured from madhya pradesh than was procured from punjab and a lot of it was because another state got mp to 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 support their farmers so i'm looking if i'm a punjabi farmer i might say oh my god these guys are guys starting to procure from other states this was also the year when the government changed the adat commission the intermediary commission from a percentage to an absolute amount which means if msp were to go up artya commission will not go up any further i'm looking at all of this and suddenly i'm suspicious and so i end up in delhi that actually is a is a good segue into discussing the role of arhatiyas because one thing that the government has said uh, is the fact that there are too many middlemen which who make indian agriculture uh, unproductive or not as efficient as it could be and recent news reports of course suggest that uh, arhatiyas seem like dalals who eat pizza and are also protesting but they clearly have survived and ha- have thrived which suggests that they perform some useful function where does the truth on arhatiyas lie uh, the arhatiyas are not the villains of the indian agriculture system right if you look at the go to market of indian agriculture the mandis were created after independence because we have you know whatever 100 million 130 million farmers even if 
15, 20 million of them are the ones who are large with more than two hectares of land, right? The rest of them, a lot of them are subsistence or have very little surplus. Now imagine these millions of farmers trying to sell uh, at the front of the market. So we needed two things. We needed actual physical places where trades could happen, which is the Monday. By the way, these were supposed to be places which were run by committees that represented farmers as well as traders, as well as buyers. That's how it started off. And then so, somewhere along the way, the farmers got thrown, thrown out of the committees and therefore farmers often feel that the mandis don't reflect their interest. But these mandis connection to the farmer, obviously all our 100 million farmers couldn't have walked into mandis at the end of every season. And so you had aggregators, which is the adats. And there was a kacha adat, which was at the village level. And then there was a larger aggregator, which was called the Paka Arat, which was across villages. Their primary role was to pick up or is to pick up uh, the farm uh, at the farm gate, all the output. It's to weigh it, to do some minimal form of sorting and grading because the specs are not clear, to transport it, to do the deal on behalf of the farmers and then go back and give the money to the farmer. It also is to provide them credit oftentimes for input and many times, because most of our farmers are still unbanked, uh, despite uh, all the stuff we talk about, it's also to provide them credit at the time of, of need. So the Arat is, is an intermediary. And because the value addition in Indian agriculture is so minimal, the intermediation role is reflected to basic stuff, transportation, credit, aggregation. And so to that extent, they only think about every trade transactionally. And what you can beat them up for is they're not doing the job that good intermediaries are supposed to do, such as they're not helping the farmer understand what to grow because the adults don't understand the market or they're not doing value addition. It's because the adult doesn't have the ability to influence, uh, to invest in infrastructure. So technically you could have asked for an intermediary which manages the risk for the farmer, but this, this intermediary's role is, is much simpler. So he is a reflection of the fact that value addition in Indian agriculture is very, very little. So you're saying that we do need an intermediary, but we perhaps need an intermediary that performs their tasks better and performs more tasks than the current intermediaries do. But tell us uh, something about the fact that this argument that seems to be made that uh, contract farming will mean that these intermediaries will magically disappear. From what I'm hearing from you is that that won't be the case. It's unlikely. I mean, the, the, why is the Aratsi? So I'll come back to your contract farming question in a minute, because even in contract farming, a large company is unlikely to want to work with thousands of farmers. They will still need an intermediary, whether that person becomes an agent, whether the person becomes a distributor, whether the person becomes the new in, version of, uh, of an Arat is, is a matter of vocabulary and also role and risk sharing, but you will still need somebody in between thousands and thousands of farmers and a large buyer or a large processor, as you do in any fragmented industry. So there will always be an intermediary. The real issue, I think, in the case of the Arat is twofold. One, does he have disproportionate power? Because most of the time, it's a monopoly or a monopsony, right? You have many, many small farmers, they don't have the ability to negotiate with an Arat because they don't have working capital or they don't have the ability to keep their, their produce for another day. They just can't take the risk. So is there a asymmetric power relationship between an Arat and a farmer? I think the answer is yes. 
And second, over time, has the Arath also ended up being the brother and the cousin of the local panchayat head or the local large farmer? And therefore, to that extent, uh, does he also have egregious incentives to not necessarily um, share risk with the farmer, but to transfer all the risk to the farmer? The answer is yes. Mm. But that's less a function of the fact that you have an intermediary. It's much more a function of the fact that you have unequal power between small farmers and aggregators or large buyers. And that's the whole problem with this law. It and there's no market present. of, sorry to interrupt you there, there's no market amongst Arhatiyas that Arhatiyas competing with each other, providing better deals to farmers, nothing of that sort exists? Well, in the absence of, uh, uh, they should be, but cartelization happens everywhere. Right. And it, it makes more sense for me to cartelize with the other Arats uh, because you have such uh, you have such transactional relationships on both sides with buyers as well as with farmers. Right. So it's an industry structure issue. And one of the biggest pushbacks that the farmers could give to this farm law is it appears to be uh, doing market reform without changing underlying power equations between farmers. So what stops, even if the transaction doesn't happen in the Monday, what stops off Monday transactions to have the same monopoly uh, angles or uh, you know, associations with it? Because unless the farmer has more power, either because they become cooperatives or a farmer producer group comes up or they have the ability to store because they're doing value adding, unless some of those deals happen, the market by itself, reformed from one form to another, is not going to solve the farmer's problem, right? And so you need both the changes to happen simultaneously. That's right. So as I think that's a, that's a very important point that this is not a magic wand reform that is going to change everything. There are underlying market conditions which, which do need to change. And let's, let's come to those because... Uh, it always seemed to me to be a curious choice for a government interested in reforming agriculture that the method they would choose is by getting out of it. Uh, it seemed, especially because there are so many things that you said can be done to fundamentally transform Indian agriculture to be more productive. And, and as I was seeing, one thing is, of course, land parcels in India. Land parcels are, are extremely small. The average land holding is really small. There are no conclusive land titles. So farmers can't use whatever land they own to get collateral from the bank. And there are a range of things that are conspiring to keep farmers poor. That has very little to do with price fixation. So could you tell us a little bit about if you were India's agriculture minister and had a chance and a carte blanche to reform Indian agriculture. What are the top two reforms that you would think of? First of all, I think it cannot be top two reforms. It has to be a combination of reforms because the system is broken in many places. And second, if you thought about what needed to change, one could build a case which says, you know, precision farming means growing or farming at the small scale level is not an issue. If you look at large farms in America today, they will actually break it up into small farms and say, here's, here's how the sunlight falls in this edge of my farm. And here is where water falls in the other edge. And so I'm going to put different levels of seedlings. So the issue is not that the farming happens at the small level. We've even seen this in poultry, where millions of small growers 
grow on behalf of large integrators and large integrators in india have outsourced growing to small farms right so the issue is not the small farm size the issue is the aggregation negotiation bar that we were just talking about so what would i do i would bring a combination of four things together simultaneously i would invest a lot more to bring a package of technology we produce cumulatively in a year china produces more hybrid varieties in fruits and vegetables than india has since independence right so we need to invest in research and development it doesn't even have to be gm though i have nothing fundamentally against gm it has to be better yielding um in seeds and seedlings because temperature is changing uh, water levels are changing soil in india is degraded we need to invest back in r&d we invest less in r&d in agriculture than we do in space right and that's ridiculous simultaneously i would provide better inputs water the biggest crisis in indian agriculture is water every time we ship rice out of india we're shipping water and we are going to run out of water in the next 10 years so we need to think about water management we need to think about soil revival 40% of indian soil is denuded so we need to improve the input that goes into indian agriculture simultaneously we need to improve the investment that goes into indian agriculture outside the field so the farmer just sells everything he produces but you look at any agri value chain where the farmer earns more dairy poultry it's because farmers have been able to keep crops they've been able to process it we need investment which basically means we need credit not psl kind of credit but value chain link credit and the biggest issue there is not money but also capacity and capability and then finally we need infrastructure when roads get built into a village farm uh, incomes go up so it's about infrastructure it's about power it's not about free power it's about power being available during the day when the farmer needs it and sur- surrounding all of this is new structures which is farmer producer groups or cooperatives so you simultaneously need all of these the good news is we have enough examples in india where this has worked whether you give us one or two so we've seen this work in dairy we've seen this work in poultry we're seeing this work in individual crops like you have this maha grape cooperative which people talk about often in maharashtra where farmers have created uh, mechanisms where they work together they're now shipping it out of india we have maha mangoes again right we have a whole bunch of areas where if the farmers come together and are then able to invest downstream they are able to negotiate better with buyers and in some cases as retail gets more organized as buyers become larger we will also see inputs being provided by buyers who have long term interest in improving yields uh, also play a critical role so the problem with indian agriculture is last year in the budget the government announced 16 initiatives in agriculture each of which were wonderful 1 million fpos better irrigation high yielding varieties they don't add up this is not about discrete efforts it's about all of these things coming together in a value chain because it's when all of them come together that the farmers um livelihood becomes sustainable and i think you've given us a very good framework of research water credit and infrastructure being four pillars on which uh, any future farming reform can evolve so uh last question since you were talking about the 
structuring and that we need new structures and a lot of it is about farmer groups coming together for better bargaining positions where is the role for government in all this and this is this is not just a question purely from an economic angle as to where the government can play an economic role but at the end of the day we are in a country where the farmer is venerated and uh, if mahatma gandhi's idea of the constitution came into being then we would be a country of self sufficient farming communities so there is a history and a history that can't be ignored and certainly cannot be ignored by politicians so where is the role of the state in all this which is cognizant of the history and cognizant of the fact that they need to do something good for the farmer i think the indian farmer is venerated only in movies and in english i mean look at the facts or we have a a, a central bank whose 50% of whose um retail inflation index is food price there is an incentive to keep food prices low i don't know if you know but we have consistently transferred wealth from farm india to urban india in our urge to keep food prices low very different from even how china works right so a i think we pref- i mean a food inflation of urban india is farm income of rural india so i don't think we do justice to our farms and we don't pay them for their land we don't pay them for their farm labor i also think we don't do justice so one of the things we should think about is what's the balance between urban food inflation and rural farm income the second thing is ftas india should have standard ftas i don't know if you know but uh, we ship out in the in the best year i think it was 38 billion even last year it was 34 billion so agriculture is amongst the top 3 or 4 exports out of india uh, rice basmati rice meat much as we malign that category we are the second largest mutton exporters in the world and yet we have no fpas and if you really wanted to revive the indian farmers income you would get fpas uh, for indian agriculture you would stand, standardize indian quality you would make it easier for us to ship stuff out the third thing i would do is i would have stable policies the whole Uh, ECA policy that we talked about, even in its new form, is ridiculous. It talks about the government will intervene if price fluctuations happen more than hundred percent in the last six months. If you look at onions, uh, price fluctuation went from fifteen to ninety rupees. Right, that was a six hundred percent inflation. So we need the government. You don't. If you don't have stable policies, you will never get large players. interested in this industry and large players as buyers are critical to have small farmers have stability of income we also need the government to be very clear on its role in in some of the other crops um, mixing up strategic reserves for food versus buying as a large grain buyer for pds you disturb the whole market so we don't have stable policies when it comes to uh, indian agriculture and then finally uh, depoliticizing cooperatives i mean most people think cooperatives are government you speak to good cooperatives they dislike the government because the government likes oftentimes many governments like to use cooperatives and mix up the business of agriculture with the politics of rural votes and so they end up politicizing aggregation systems like cooperatives so making sure that the politicization is minimal by political parties much more than by the government is another critical area where the government can step in 
So there is a lot to do for government, more in the nature of traditional governmental work of ensuring stability, certainty, and a level playing field, and uh, the the odd prop when it's when it's needed, and perhaps not uh, an active interventionist role. So last, I'm going to try and squeeze in one more question, which is, where do you see these protests going now? It's been two months. There doesn't seem to be a resolution in sight. Uh, the Supreme Court has come in, but that also doesn't seem to be working at the moment. So how do you see this ending? You know, to me, these protests are um, a, a manifestation of... of um, it's a bit like the toy manufacturer in the US protesting when um, Walmart started importing toys from China, right? I mean, that's what the Punjabi and the Haryanvi farmers are really saying that 40 years we helped you out. Are you going to yank um, our, our, uh, the MSP from beneath us without giving us adequate notice and without helping us transition? So it's actually about, this protest is about social nets as you change laws in a country as complex as India. And so to me, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out because we have two very different drivers on both sides. The government I think will struggle to bend over because they will worry that all subsequent reforms will see protests on the road. Maybe the next one will be the labor reform. But for the farmer, it's an existential question. So I think this is going to be, this is a fight to the finish for them because if they are not able to get reassurance on MSV, which by the way has nothing to do with the laws, <laughs> they worry that tomorrow the tap might be turned off and they wouldn't know what to do with their degraded land and with 40 years of supporting the nation. So I think it's a fight to the finish for them and for the government stepping back is going to be very difficult because they're setting a precedent. I think that's where I mean, you know this better. That's where I think a fig leaf will be provided and maybe that's what the courts are going to do. So I think there might be a smart resolution out using the legal entities as a shield, but I don't think the protests are going to die because in a funny way, the protests have nothing to do with the law and everything to do with how we as a nation are going to transition from um, supporting individual sectors to a more market-based economy. And in the transition, how do we help the people who get impacted the most? That's right. And I think we can leave it there. It's not really a question of law, though it is a legal issue about three laws. It's really a question about trust. It's a question about where we see the Indian economy going and how we see agriculture in this new scheme of things. Uh, thanks very much, Irina. That was a really enlightening conversation. Learned a lot from it. Uh, and uh, I'm certainly more informed than I was uh, half an hour ago. Thank you very much for all your insights into this area, which a lot of us as it ha are, are getting to grips with, uh, but now we'll know a little bit better. Thank you very much. Time for Clatter, our weekly quiz that's a bit tougher than Clat. Remember last week's quiz, we had two questions. The first was the Spanish word for assassin, also a Hollywood film about busting a drug cartel. The answer is Sicario. And rhyming with that is the tennis player who was a multiple Grand Slam winner in the 90s. And the answer is Aranza Sanchez Vicario. We had many right answers and the winner is Shashi Narayan. Shashi, many congratulations. 
uh, gift voucher is coming your way. Time for this week's quiz and the question is given by Pranay Modi, my colleague. So thanks to Pranay for this question. So here it goes. G.C. Basu is the protagonist of a very famous piece of work which depicted real life events in Indian history. So formidable was the success of this work that it is credited with giving birth to an entire genre of professional performance. The real life events that this piece of work is based on have an equally rich history and these events have been credited with having played a major role in inspiring the methods of protest of Mahatma Gandhi. What is the historical event and what is this piece of work? Do write in with your answers to justify at vidhilegalpolicy.in. Right answers stand a chance to win a thousand rupee gift voucher. Thanks very much for tuning into this episode. As always, we end with a song. And this time song, since we are talking about farmers, is the song that idolizes farmers in Bollywood, Mere Desh Ki Dharti. We certainly have farmers in our hearts. Whether that translates into our politics or not, only time will tell. Thank you for listening. Adjourn. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, follow us on Twitter at Vidhi underscore India for regular updates. We are on SoundCloud and Spotify as Vidhi Center for Legal Policies podcast. You can also listen to us on Google Podcasts or iTunes. Email us at justify at vithilegalpolicy.in to share your comments and feedback on this episode.